to Creative Conversations. I'm Roger Humphrey. In this episode, my guest is luthier Doug Birch. Doug is not only a talented musician, he is also a builder of highly sought-after mountain dulcimers, and I'm really excited for you to meet him. We join in progress. But you know, I first heard of you because when I first started working at Elderly, I worked with a guy named Nate Moss, who oh, was yeah. a student. So I first heard about you from him and then met um, a year or so later, Nan Barone, who oh, was yeah. a friend of <laughs> who was a student of yours. So your name was always popping up. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm like a bad rash. Can't get rid of me. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, yeah, and, and, and I had heard of you through a couple of other people. Uh, there's not too many instrument builders around. Uh, a town true, true. and and uh the the young people that are building guitars are building electric guitars you know and i think they're building mm-hmm. kits i don't even think that they're <laughs> i don't i don't oh, think really? any i don't think any of them own a router so <laughs> wow, wow. so well, that's, I, you know that's how a lot of people get started you know because they don't have the equipment but sure. but you know it is it is sort of funny um in the instrument making world, it seems to be a lot of young people coming in now, instead of like the old hippie aesthetic of working with your hands and stuff, it's more like learning CAD and CNC. And, and, you know, they grew up with this technology that, um, you know, I'll, I'll meet um, people that are doing beautiful work but like they don't really know how to sharpen hand tools. Because, you know, they've really focused and, and, you know, the work is still good, but it's a totally different way of looking at it, you know? Right, um, right. You know, yeah, they, I, I've, I've seen some, um, uh, there's a couple of guitar luthiers that that, uh, that I followed online a little bit, uh, classical mm-hmm. guitar luthiers. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, they're doing some really amazing decorative work with um, lasers. Uh, right and, and do laser cuttings and things like that that you know it used to be it was a chisel baby <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. and uh but i i find actually that the, it it seems to me that they get a little preoccupied with the aesthetics and sometimes the the sound uh and the playability is wanting you know particularly That's, at the price point you know they come in with these know, cars that are are bespoke instruments, so to speak, you know, and you listen to them and say, you know, I can, I can buy a $500 guitar at Elderly's for <laughs> gonna, You know, it's, it's a funny thing that you say that because something I've noticed making dulcimers, and this is, this is a generalization, but the, the more intense and dedicated and evolved a player it is, the less requirements they have when they what the, they'll have very specific requirements about playability and sound and the cosmetics are almost irrelevant or secondary <laughs> and for the very excited sort of um the person that's more excited about playing and the instruments than they are about putting the work into it to really excel i mean you know they enjoy it they have a good time it's almost more like they want the look of the instrument to be something very unique and special that that has a deep meaning to them where the players are more like you know give me a car with a slant six and a full tank of gas and i'm ready to i'm ready to roll you know i don't need a i don't need a ferrari you know i just need something that works and and um when I worked at elderly instruments, I often noticed the same thing that, you know, the the really good player would be like, could Martin make this guitar with a slightly narrower neck? Would they do that? <laughs> and then there were the people that are like, you know, will they will they inline my astrological sign in my full chart at every fret and do a rosette based on my my latest root canal or, you know, whatever, you know, and and, you know, it's it's just an interesting thing. And um when you I, know, I, I, you know, I was, just, I was going to say, um, I, I, I was living in Tokyo for a couple of years, and 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 before I left, uh, I was put in, in touch with a builder named Saro Kono, and his hmm. his instruments are pretty famous. Right, Segovia played one at the end of his career, okay. and so anyway, um, uh, I asked him to build a guitar for me, and and uh, so he asked me. Um, uh, 
what I was looking for in terms of looks and aesthetics and things like that. You know? And and I was a young man then. I mean, I was, you know, I still had hair on my head. And so, <laughs> and so, so anyway, I told him, I said, I don't care what it looks like. I want, I want a working guitar. I want one that sounds awesome and plays great. And the rest of it, I don't care. And he looked at me because he was so used to dealing with Americans that yeah. wanted glitz and razzle dazzle. And when he heard that, all I wanted was a good sound and a playable instrument that I could make music with. He just smiled from ear to ear and he said, okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the only real fancy thing I offer cosmetically is just more highly figured wood. Um, I know my, my aesthetic is sort of like I can't do anything prettier than the tree did. Right. So I, I tend not to get into inlays and carvings and things. You know, it's it's almost more like I think the the shape of the instrument is like a frame and then the wood is the picture. And and I kind of don't want to interfere with that. So aside from, you know, scale length or number of strings or extra frets or, you know, features like that, it pretty much is, I could make you a walnut dulcimer. I could make you a walnut dulcimer for several hundred dollars more that has outstandingly beautiful wood but I always make it really clear they're not going to they're going to they're going to sound relatively identical though you know the the pretty wood costs more um but it doesn't sound better <laughs> and and you know and often people will be well you know I might as well spend a couple extra hundred and get something that's really beautiful but a lot of people will be like oh I don't care about that I just don't care about that and that always lets me know they're really more concerned with playability and responsiveness and tone and the things that I really, the things that made me decide to start building dulcimers years ago because those things were important to me and were not always easy to find in a in an instrument that was available at the time. So I, I, I know what you mean. Uh, it, it must have been really refreshing for that guy to hear someone <laughs> just make me a guitar that, you know, sounds good. And How did you um, get interested in doing uh, dulcimers, building dulcimers? Well, you know, when I was a teenager, um, the long story short is I was uh, a rock and roll uh, piano player when I was a teenager, when I was around 15 or 16, playing in, um, you know, what now they'd call garage bands, but... It was, you know, a bunch of guys playing music. And at a coffee house once, I heard someone play a mountain dulcimer, and it was totally outside of anything I was musically interested in at the time, but something just grabbed me about that instrument. It just, wow, what is this thing? And at the time in New York City, um, this is the early 70s, I, I, it took me a few years to find one. Um, because I would walk into music stores and no one knew what I was talking about, and it was before the internet. And um, I finally got my hands on a dulcimer, um, and um, there were one or two books on how to play it that were all very much like, here's how to tune it, here's a bunch of familiar songs by number. Um, and that didn't interest me much, but I knew basic music theory, so I, I basically figured out the layout of the fingerboard and scale patterns and chord patterns and taught myself how to play it. But every instrument I would find as I got into the dulcimer loop, they either didn't sound good or they didn't respond evenly or they had intonation problems. And for some reason, I, I started tinkering and then I started building kits and I was really influenced a lot by reading about classical guitar makers and luthiers, things like that. And the, the, the dulcimer is mechanically an extremely different contraption. But, um, you know, like a lot of people will say it's a bad design or an inefficient design because you have the neck glued to the soundboard, so it's immediately quiet. <laughs> but that also, you know, and from if you're thinking of it in terms of, you know, a guitar, an instrument with a neck, of course, it doesn't make sense. But then if you think about it being a quiet instrument with a certain quality of tone and really long sustain, you know, like if you think of it as, as what it is, as opposed to what you think it should be, 
um, it's an instrument with a lot of potential. And for some reason, I just got bit with the bug of learning how to make them myself. So I made some kits and then um, made a few at the kitchen table. And then I was able to um, hang out in a luthery shop and get advice from some really good luthiers when I was 18 or so and learned a lot from them. And when I was 25, I stopped building because it was sort of like, do I travel a lot as a musician or do I settle down and keep a shop going? But I always missed it. And then in 2007, um, after working at Elderly for 10 or 12 years, um, I just really wanted to get back to it. So here I am. <laughs> so uh, are, are the mountain dulcimer the only instruments that you build or do you build or work with other much. ones? I've occasionally fooled around with other things, but I, I keep going back to mountain dulcimers. It's, you know, it's, it's what I really know as a player. And I, I kind of feel that um, I just understand them really well. So, you know, for a while I was thinking of making other instruments, but I usually, for the, uh, for other instruments, I usually find instruments made by other people I'm happy with. Ah. So I haven't really felt that need you know like i i play hammer dulcimers made by a friend of mine in ohio and i love his work and he's already doing it so no sense I, in reinventing the wheel exactly exactly so it i think for me it's always been just you know a personal thing of what i understand and the relationship to it and um um you know every now and then i think of venturing into other things but i also have some physical issues and I could only work so much. So it's kind of like I'm set up to do dulcimers. I love doing it. So I'm just sort of sticking with that for now. You know. How's, how's business? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I had been at it for about five years and around 2012, I was really on a roll. I always had a couple of commissions and I always had several dulcimers I had made just up for sale on my website or um, at Elderly and things were going really well. And that's around the time that um, um, my lower back, as I like to say, decided to lose the game of Jenga. And, oh, no. Um, oh, no, and, no, no, um, no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, I was, I was at a festival in Kentucky and I stepped out of the car and as soon as my foot touched the ground, I doubled over and let's just say, um, I learned a lot about degenerative disc disease and lumbar stenosis and four surgeries later and all that. So life is good, but I, um, I'm just not able to work as much as I, as I used to. Sure. And what's been really interesting is the, the interest in my work, or at least as far as people wanting to buy a dulcimer, always seems to match up my current ability to get work done. So, <laughs> you know, like if, if I'm going through a year where my back is doing pretty good and I work a lot, I get more people interested in my dulcimers and, you know, it'll be like, man, I haven't heard from anyone in a month or two. And, and my wife will go, well, you're only able to work two or three hours a day. So maybe that's good. And then when I'm kind of going through a phase where my body's doing better, it picks up. It's really interesting. I, I have no control over it, but it seems to be a self-regulating system. You know? Boy, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's also been an interesting thing. Um, you know, I, I went through this as a musician and I went through it as, as, a, as an instrument maker, you know, it, we could easily wrap up our, our identity in what it is we're doing. And, and then when you're in a situation when um, that isn't something that's going on a lot, it, it, it could be sort of an interesting time to reevaluate your sense of self. And, you know, like when I was in my 20s, I'd pretty much until I worked at elderly I'd in my when I was 37 I pretty much was a, a full-time self-employed musician and when I was in my 20s or 30s occasionally when gigs got really slow and I'd have to like grab some part-time work or do you know some temporary odd jobs or something I remember feeling this sense of like I've lost who I am or a sense of failure or 
you know, like I'm not making it doing what I do. I'm not getting. And, and then at one point it was suddenly like, you know, some of the best musicians I know have no, never had an interest in making a living at it. And, you know, how there could just be this tie up of, you know, I'm a professional musician, but if I'm not making all my money right now doing that, what does that mean about me as a musician? It means right. I need a side gig to get by, that's all. But there was a time when it was a real sort of um, um, threat to my sense, my self-concept. And I had to go through that with building instruments, kind of like, well, what am I if I'm not able to do this full time and all the time? And it's like, I'm a guy who makes dulcimers when his bad back lets him, you know, it's just, it's just <laughs> sort of another activity. And it's something I love to do. And I make, you know, part of my living doing it, but it's just an activity, you know, uh, all this. And I took a vacation to visit friends in the Midwest. And, um, suddenly thought, you know, maybe I just need to like reboot my life. I'm kind of, you know, I like where I live and all that, but I'm just stuck. And while I was traveling in the Midwest, I called the one person I, I knew fairly well in Lansing, Wanda Deegan, who I'd known for decades. Yeah, I love Wanda. Dulcimer. She's a great person. Yep. Yeah, I figured you must know her. And um, I said, hey, I'm in Ohio. Why don't I come up and visit you? I hadn't seen her in quite a few years. And I mentioned I needed a change and didn't know what to do next. And she said, well, there's an opening for a manager at Elderly Instruments. And I was like, God, why the hell would I want to live in Lansing? You know, why would I want to get a job? You know, why would I want to do it? And a month later, I lived here. And, um, <laughs> and you know, I kind of, all I knew was, well, you know, Wanda's cool. And there's Elderly and the Travelers Club. And if two places that weird are in town, that that's like signs of life, you know. Um, you know, I'll probably run into people I could relate to and stuff like that. And, um, but to get back to what you were talking about, the sequitur is when I first moved here, you know, I had one old acquaintance, I'd go to work, I'd get out of work and I'd have all this time on my hands. I didn't have a social life or whatever. And for decades, I had wanted to play claw hammer banjo, but never had the time or energy to do it. So the first thing I started doing was learning how to play banjo. And it was an amazing experience because it was, it reminded me of why I first started playing music as a teenager. I just loved it. And I loved the process of doing it. And I had the freedom to learn a new instrument. No one expected me to be good at it. I had no, I had, you know, I didn't have a reputation to try to uphold that I'm really good at this. Um, and it was sort of like it, it rekindled that fire for playing music because, you know, I, I when I was living in Colorado, I kind of ran into the, the dilemma a lot of musicians have, which is when, you know, when you're working a lot, the instruments often don't come out of the case when you're home. And when I'm not working a lot, I'm on the phone trying to get work. Um, <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, I didn't start falling in love with music and going into music when I was young thinking, oh, this is a great career decision. I'm going to become a, you know, professional musician. Um, my passion was music. And for years, I tried to find other things that interested me enough to pursue those to make a living. And I found a lot of things that I was interested in, but nothing grabbed my attention as much as music. And then when I figured out I can get paid to do this, it just sort of snowballed and I, I went with it. Um, but, but, you know, it, it was such a wonderful experience to reconnect with just that, that passion for playing and learning an instrument. And, you know, um, a friend of mine, told me years ago she had a boyfriend who was a jazz sax player and he would spend a couple hours a day working on arpeggios and scales and she said how do you reward yourself for that kind of discipline and I said you know you're totally missing the point it's it it is the reward you know <laughs> and and then you know when he goes out and plays a gig the spontaneity he could play with 
and the technique he could draw on while being spontaneous is the reward. It's, you know, it's not like he needs a lollipop for having, you know, done all that work. And, and you know, I think something I find with people in general, um, if someone's passionate about almost anything, they could be interesting to relate to because they just get that spark and you become kind of lit up by their intensity and their interest in whatever they are. Right. But when I meet people that just don't seem to light up about anything, it's often a little bit like, well, I think we're speaking different languages here. You know, I, um, I think that that's one of the reasons why I wanted to be involved in the arts when I was a kid. Uh, the guitar and music in general was my art, but mm -hmm. my, um, my, my preference has always been to hang out with artistic people. It's not that I dislike other people. You know, I have, you know, a brother who's a businessman, you know, and I, I kind of like hanging out with him too. But, um, uh, uh, but that said, um, uh, you talk about that passion, you know, when you're talking to uh, a musician or a luthier or a dancer or choreographer or, you know, kind of pick your discipline. Mm -hmm ask them about their work and their eyes light up and, mm -hmm. and, and they're, and they're number one, they're quirky. We all are. We're all a little right. odd by, by, by society standards, whatever those may mm -hmm. be. Um, and, and for the most part, we're easily outraged. <laughs> 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 and, and, uh, uh, and such, but, but having said that by and large, I mean, there's always exceptions, but by and large, most artistic people that I know are good people. And and uh, and and they're fun to be around and funny to be around, and uh, uh, and I just I I've just always said that was the the whole core of this podcast was not every artist is world famous you know mm -hmm. not every musician or every composer is Paul McCartney or John Williams or you know kind of right. fill in the blank there, um, uh, a lot of local people but I've met a lot of local people who are great artists terrific and mm -hmm. fun people and. And so that's, you know, for me, that's the idea of being able to celebrate that, you know, mm -hmm. because these are the people that I have enjoyed being around for 60 years, mm -hmm. you know, that I could, I could define that. I could say definitively, these are the people I like to be around. And, uh, you know, you know, I think you, you brought up an interesting point, I think, and it's probably a lot harder for younger people now who like grew up with the web and grew up with social media um that it's kind of like the fact that i know that there's a family called the kardashians and know anything about them is completely involuntary you know <laughs> somehow somehow i know about the existence of these people and I like when I first heard of them, I'm like, so what is it that they do? And someone said they're famous for being famous. And I'm like, okay. Um, it's like the, when, when you're growing up with that, it's probably harder to value what's going on in your own community or your own neighborhood or, or um, what you're able to do yourself. You know, people right. often talk about like, it's what I'm supposed to look like. And there's all this pressure and false image impressed on them. But I think it's even more subtle than that. It's like, you know, some kid has this dream of playing the guitar and well, I'm never going to be a rock star. So what's the point? Or, or that you have to, I remember when my dad retired, he took up writing and he had a really old computer that was barely capable of working as a word processor anymore. <laughs> and I tried to get him to upgrade. And he kept saying, when I sell an article, I'll buy a better computer. And, and I remember telling him, you know, dad, you do, aren't you doing this? Cause you know, he, he, he needed the validity uh. to invest in his passion. Sure. which he could have afforded to do by being able to like, I'm writing well enough where someone's buying my stuff, you know? And, and I, and I kind of said to him, you know, 
just get a better computer. He got a better computer. And what was interesting is he actually sold an article to a local newspaper and I congratulated him and he's like, oh, it's no big deal. And I'm like, so you didn't deserve a computer till you got paid to write, but now that you got paid to write, it's no big deal. And he started, and he started laughing. He goes, yeah, I see your point, you know. <laughs> but I think that, you know, we've, we've gotten so far away from direct experience of what's going on around, you know, where you can walk into a coffee shop and here's someone making 50 bucks that might be a phenomenal musician. Um, you know, some guy, some, I mean, some guy that's making 50 bucks, you're just buying a cup of coffee. Yeah, I know. Feeding, right. You know, feeding the tip jar. And um, I remember when I, over the last few years I lived in Boulder, the um, acoustic music playing on the street thing kind of got ruined by a couple of musicians that kind of lobbied to get the town to allow you to use amplifiers. So like you'd get a hack violinist in a tuxedo running through so much chorus that you couldn't recognize how bad his intonation was, you know, dancing around, selling albums by the score and making hundreds of dollars. And then a few blocks down, there was some Eastern European guy that didn't speak English that was playing gypsy violin that was off the charts and no one was paying attention to him. And that's when I got right to most people, music is something that comes out of speakers, not out of musicians. Um, so with the sort of Vegas style shtick this one guy had, he was getting all, all this attention and money. And here's this like remarkable violinist who's just a guy playing the fiddle on the street. Right, yeah. And, and they were like two blocks away from each other. It was an amazing um, revelation of kind of how people look at all kinds of things, you know. Um, well, our, and, our culture does like its shiny stuff. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's, you're right. If it's if it's if it's new and if it's shiny, uh, if it sparkles, um, you know, people tend to gravitate towards it more so than the other. Um, mm -hmm. I know that that. Um, uh, I would play at a wedding or someplace like that. I would just be playing background music. Mm -hmm. And I would hear often enough, I guess, from young adults, you know, their, their best friend's getting married or their brother's getting married or whatever. And they would stand and listen for a second, come over and say, I have never heard anybody play guitar like that. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, I ain't that good. That's the dirty. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I'm better than the people they'd heard. And, and, uh, uh, and if you've never heard classical guitar, even simple etudes and things like that sound pretty oh, spectacular, yeah, yeah. you know, oh, and, so, stuff. and so, uh, yeah, uh, but they're, they're used to seeing bands and bars or, or, uh, uh, you know, so if if it's live music at all, and children never see live music, right? Now, there's no place for a kid to see live music. I play if I play my guitar in front of a child, uh, and I used to go to like the elementary schools and things like that and play. And I live in a small town now, and some of these kids are growing up with kids of their own. And if they walk by, they'll stop and say hi and talk to me. I mean, it makes a huge impression on them, you know. And mm -hmm. and. Uh, uh, because they're not used to hearing anybody live being right. able to sit there and play music, you know. And it's and if they do, if the people they do, like maybe at church or something like that, particularly on a guitar, if it's somebody at church, it's somebody that bangs out a handful of chords and, and you know, sings a hymn or a gospel to them. And, uh, um, and that's pretty much what they're used to hearing at best, you know, and it's always an accompaniment instrument, you know. And, uh, right, and they right. hear somebody playing like a solo guitar and they're just, they're flabbergasted. And, it, and that saddens me a little bit because there's some wonderful musicians, not just locally, of course, but uh, internationally, people out there yeah, who oh, yeah. are just, you know, trying to eke out a living because nobody even knows that they're, nor, nor do they care for the most part. And yeah. uh, so it's, it's uh, I find that uh, kind of sad. I mean, I, I, I understand it, but I wish it didn't right. work that way. You know, so. it's, you know, I remember when I first started working at Elderly Instruments and I was talking with Stan Werbin once and said, you know, I, 
I, I bought my first dulcimer kit from elderly when I was 16 because I found elderly in the whole earth catalog. <laughs> um, that's, you know, how I discovered elderly instruments. Yeah. But then I said, you know, I asked him to give me the quick rundown of the history of the store. And, you know, it started out with he and Sharon Burton, you know, buying instruments at estate sales and auctions in different places and selling them, I guess, at flea markets and stuff in the Ann Arbor area. And when they decided to open a store, there was already Herb David in Ann Arbor. So they looked into East Lansing and the, the part of the conversation that stuck out in, our, in what we were just talking about Stan said so. He and Sharon came out to East Lansing, and the first thing they noticed is half the kids at MSU were walking around carrying guitar cases. And they were like, oh, that's a good sign if we're going to open a guitar store, you know. Um, and I was like, when was the last time you went to a college campus and saw lots of kids walking around with guitar cases or or ukulele cases or, right. or anything? And, you know, the... It's something I noticed, like I grew up in New York City and um, I was 18 and had a ponytail and played the dulcimer when disco was at its peak. Um, it, was, it, it, was, it, was a, it was a dark time. And, um, and um, what was interesting is the only people into current musical trends in the city that I could relate to were the punk rockers. Um, and it was sort of like disco, aside from everything, whether you like the music or not, it had gone, you know, it was, it was complete studio manufactured music. You know, you, you couldn't, you know, four people couldn't form a garage band and play their favorite disco song. Right. Um, and it's almost like punk had to erupt as the sort of people's music or the folk alternative to to disco that suddenly you know anyone could make music and you don't have to be great and you don't have to be slick and of course it took on its own thing like every scene does but it it's always interested me how there's always the subculture that takes things back into its own hands in one way or another and um and I think that, you know, that we're in this strange place now where, um, you know, kids kids are growing up not even buying CDs. It's like the, you know, the the days of digging through the record bin and looking for treasure and taking risks on stuff that looks good and, you know, just the discovery or or you know, hanging out with the other geeks in the back of the record shop. They're there used to be a used record store in Boulder and I used to buy a lot of British folk music and obscure world music. And every now and then I'd go in and the guy behind the counter would say, we didn't even know each other's names. And he goes, Oh, I put these aside for you. <laughs> Cause he kind of just knew that, Oh, that, that, that guy's going to probably buy this, you know, and he right. would just sometimes make a stack of stuff that he would think I would like. And he was usually right. And, um, you know, it's it's sort of like I, I think, um, you know, I sometimes think that for most people, unless they go very deeply into music or into an art form or into anything, it's kind of like you could have this car in any color as long as it's black, that, <laughs> that you think you think you have a lot of choices of genres and music, but it's just what's in the pipeline it's what spotify is getting paid to promote by a label it's what's you know it's i mean in our days it was the radio payola stuff you know right. it's like you know let's make a hit uh, surprisingly enough when i talked to kids when i when i was a kid and you'd ask like, anybody by age who your favorite bands were and everybody had you know their own opinion and there were you know, and there were two camps, Rolling Stones or Beatles, you know, I was, right, right. <laughs> you couldn't like both of them. It had to be one or the other, you know, and, uh, uh, and so we had to, and, and your favorite radio station and boy, you had your favorite radio mm -hmm. station, your favorite DJ, blah, blah, blah. And you talk to a kid today and say, what do you listen to? And, you know, whatever happens to be on, you know, they, exactly. they, 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 they're really not following that. I mean, they listen. And when I work with a kid, uh, 
a few years ago, I read a, a really kind of an interesting statistic, and that was that in music stores across the country, acoustic guitars were outselling electric guitars, wow. and they and they still are. You know, they the the electric guitar is that bright shiny thing, but most of these kids don't have aspirations to be in a rock band. I mean, some do. I mean, these mm -hmm. guitars are still selling, but yeah. acoustic guitars are outselling them. And mm -hmm. and uh, and I've had many, many, many students as children and, and teenagers mm -hmm. play classical guitar. And I'll say, you know, when they're 14, I'll say, are you still interested in this or should we switch to something else? Go, no, I want to play this. And, wow. and yet they have zero, mostly have zero desire to play these songs, even for their friends, let alone perform. Um, wow. they, they, they have no performance aspirations, but they love, mm -hmm. they love to play the music. They'll listen to it a little bit. They don't listen to it a lot. They're not married to right. it. They'll listen mm -hmm. to, you know, more contemporary popular stuff. But when they want to make music, and they do, um, they like the idea of playing classical music and uh, and occasionally mm -hmm. some fingerstyle stuff. And most of them, not all again, but most of them have little or no desire to sing. They just want to play. They want to play the guitar the way their grandparents played piano. That's wonderful. I mean, I think, you know, the and it's interesting talking about the classical guitar because over the years, I've had a lot of people assume that I, well, you play all these weird instruments, so you must play guitar, and I actually don't play guitar. <laughs> um, I, um, when I when I became the showroom manager at Elderly Instruments, I know more about acoustic guitars than probably a lot of guitar players, but I forced myself to learn enough to be able to like tune a guitar and play something and hand it to someone so that so that I would have credibility right you know but it i don't know what it is about the guitar it has never made physical sense to me the tuning you know five fingers but six strings it's it's a funny thing and but what i was going to say is i love classical guitar and i've always felt that the instrument itself, the classical guitar, the nylon strung guitar, has been so misunderstood in our culture. I mean, I remember when I was a teenager, if you went to um, the local music store and you were a beginning guitar player, they might recommend a classical guitar because it's easier on your fingers and you don't need calluses. You know, that was sort of the... That's the sales the, point. Right. The sales point and not that it's... It's a unique, very versatile instrument in its own right. And the other thing that happened is many years ago, um, when I first moved to Philadelphia in my early 20s, I had a gig coming up and I went to a, coffee, a local coffee house and there was a contra dance band that was gonna do a set. And they come out and the guitar player had a nylon string guitar and I thought, uh, this is going to be some hack that strums a nylon string guitar with a pick. By the end of the set, I introduced myself and asked if he would be willing to try working with me. <laughs> um, um, he was just a phenomenal musician. And, and when I said, you know, why are you playing a nylon string guitar? And he goes, you could get more sound out of it. You know, <laughs> and, you know, he just sort of introduced me to this whole other way of 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 looking at the instrument somehow i did not grow up in a musical family but somehow by the time i was you know 10 i knew all the instruments in the orchestra um well they used know, to that, teach at an elementary school yeah i mean it was part of education i knew right i, I, knew I can i can i can remember being like in the third grade and and sitting and listening uh with the teacher present you know listening to peter and the wolf and yeah. understanding all the instruments and what they, how they sound and all that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. You know, I grew up in a small town, not New York City, like any right, stretch. Right, right. And, and so and they don't get any of that stuff today. And it's really kind of sad. And, and you know, it's so interesting because there's this emphasis. It almost seems like right now it's a little tangent from the topic, but I was hearing a thing about on the radio about how... Um, how how you know the very successful people in tech and all this stuff tend to be highly creative people and that we need more of them 
And at the same time, anything to do with arts or creativity is kind of considered, you know, why, why are we wasting our money on this stuff right. Um, right. with right. kids? And, you know, I, I, one of the things I realized in my own life and from observing friends of mine is that creative people are generally kind of wired to be creative and they might focus on certain forms or media or outlets but you know i have friends who you know raise their kids in remarkably creative ways and and you know oh. people who do you know jobs i mean some of the most interesting creative people i know are like computer programmers and you know like on one hand people go oh geeks but like if you go to their cubicle they've got everything from dungeons and dragons to like science fiction and you know i mean they're they're just interested in all kinds of thought experiments and looking at things from different angles and um i knew one in Boulder, I had a, a friend who was a computer programmer, and I asked her how she got into it. And she said, well, when I went to college, the most interesting people were in the arts and in computer science, and the ones in computer science had an easier time making a living. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so she just sort of went into it because those were the people she found interesting. Um, yeah, I, and, and, and I would totally agree with that. And it seems to be... An yeah, my limited experience in this particular way, I guess, um, uh, it, it just seems that the, the, the very politicians who will deny the children the money uh, or the, the schools the money to teach these kids how to be creative, mm -hmm. uh, have their kids in my studio at age six, uh, right. learning, learning how to play music. Um, and, and I'm going, you know, these kids, should, there should be art classes, there should be music classes. Uh, music in motion. I mean, I can remember as a kid, you know, just as a little boy in school, you know, yeah. marching around the room, clapping hands, you know, singing songs, banging on anything that you could bang on. We had we had to make a, drums out of uh, 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 oatmeal boxes, empty mm -hmm. <laughs> empty Quaker oats boxes, and you yeah. know, and and things like that. And so much of that just doesn't happen anymore. It does it's from time to time, but it's not consistent, you know. And it's, and I know that. I mean, like I said, I used to do these these programs at elementary schools. They'd bring the mm -hmm. kids in the gym and and have them sit in front of me. And I'd have two groups. I'd have the younger kids uh, from mm -hmm. first grade to third grade, and then I had fourth mm -hmm. and fifth graders in a different group. And I would look down there, and some of these kids they come in and you know. There's no, there's no such thing as a quiet first grader. You know, I mean, they're just right. rambunctious, you know, and, and I would start playing and all of a sudden the room would get quiet, you know, yeah. and they're just, and they're just watching my fingers and, and, yeah. uh, and such. And with the old, little bit older kids, one of the things I would do is I'd play uh, the, a Bach piece. It, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's a famous, uh, it's a Bore um, mm -hmm. and, and it's, it, Anyway, having said that, it's it's a perfect example of, of uh, two part counterpoint. I uh, just yeah. and, and it's re really wonderful. I just tell them, you know, I don't give them fancy words. I just say, if you listen close, it sounds like two people playing at the same time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. they'd sit there, and we're talking first graders and second graders, and they'd yeah. sit there it, with rapt attention. And very, yeah. very rarely would you see any of these kids uh, misbehave. And mm -hmm. and I can remember uh, in one, I had a. a uh, a young boy, fifth grader, I think, um, and he had, he was just very interested, and he had some really good questions, you know, as we go, and he'd ask some really good questions. After the kids were ushered out, and I'm packing up my toys, uh, one of the teachers came over, and she said, that was the most amazing thing I've ever seen. I said, oh, no, just playing guitar. She says, no, you don't understand. That kid that asked all those great questions, she said, he's our troublemaker. He's wow. the one that we have to watch out for all the time. Wow. And I thought, yeah, okay, he's bored. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's, not yeah. he's not interested in buying what you're selling, you know. And but yeah. I mean, he, he yeah. was he was absolutely positively focused on every note. Had questions that were literally good, intelligent questions, not just kids' questions. You say, do you have any questions? Yeah, my uncle plays guitar. You know, okay. right, right, right. <laughs> you know, that would be the whole question. You know, and right, right, and so. 
So, yeah, I mean, it's it, it really has a profound effect and the kids aren't getting it. And I, and I feel bad about that. I mean, I was when I was in fifth grade, I was singing uh, in a school choir, school choir. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we had to meet. It was extracurricular. We had to meet before school twice a week. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have to get to school an hour early. Try that today. Get to school, yeah. <laughs> you know. And we've got the same situation here in this little town that I live in. Now we've got an amazing uh, uh, band director. I mean, this guy is mm -hmm. just a fireball. Mm -hmm. And he loves to play, and he plays jazz on pan drums, steel drums. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. um, working out the scheduling to get him on podcasts, as a matter of yeah. fact. He's a wonderful guy. And he has created this entire band of, of steel drums. And he gets these kids to buy their own drums. Although they've got a few at the school and they come in, you know, a couple times a week, two or three days a week, they come into school an hour early to practice, That's awesome. <laughs> you know, and I mean, and so, and it's great. Now I have, a, I have a, a niece who went through that program and she still has, she still has her drum. She doesn't play it very much. She also mm -hmm. plays guitar. She doesn't play that very much either, mm -hmm. but, but, uh, but she had, she has had all of that and those advantages. And, yeah. and, yeah. Uh, and I, I feel bad for the kids who haven't, who haven't been able to go through that, who haven't had those advantages. See, uh, and, I think, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand is that everyone who picks up an instrument or everyone who picks up a brush or whatever they might not become a musician they might not become an artist yeah but it opens up a part of who you are right that 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 is not generally encouraged you know sort of like this kid that was so captivated by right. the guitar you know who knows what he's daydreaming you know when right. when he's sitting in class you know and if someone if someone was able to peg you know this kid is wired for going into the arts in some right. form and maybe then would you know hey you ought to take a theater you know and if the school had a theater thing and right you know um it it it, it you know and i mean really um that's the other thing i think in our in our culture i mean on one hand I always used to tell my music students the only difference in the United States, the word amateur sort of has a negative connotation. Yeah. It's like right. you're not good. And right. a professional not, not good. Is. Not, not, not good enough to be a enough. Pro. Yeah. Where, where from what I understand, like in the United Kingdom and stuff, a lot of people like, will be recognized like an amateur archaeologist who museums go to consult, you know, or something because <laughs> right. they're so knowledgeable. Right. And, and, um, you know, I would always try to tell my students that the only difference between an amateur and a professional is do you make your living at it? It has no qualify, you know, it has no reflection on the quality of what you do exactly and and you know I, I could I could name a couple of 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 uh, amateur classical guitarists that would put me to shame same with me with dulcimer you know it's like you know it's 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 real interesting because um I think I think again it's it's almost I heard the term once in an article and it was called like i think that the author referred to it as embodied capitalism <laughs> which was the idea that unless what we do has a sense of being a marketable commodity we don't value it right you know you know so it's kind of like um you could love playing the guitar well like my dad with the computer like well when i get paid to write an article i'll get sure. a better computer it's like that need, was the validity yeah. that, that he needed that what I'm doing has validity. And I, I was more like, well, dad, the fact that you're doing it is the validity, <laughs> you know, whether anyone ever reads it or buys it, you know, um, um, and, and I think that a lot of people just sort of have that feeling like, um, why bother? You know, you leave that for the people that are, are really good at it or the professionals. And, you know, I've been a sideman to some 
hacks that were really good at marketing you know oh. they would say they were the best and people would believe them and i'd get on stage and go well i'm getting paid and putting a bag over my head wouldn't be appropriate and you know and and <laughs> you know but it's sort of like but it's sort of like you know they were really good at the marketing and the shtick and what to wear and you know you play for a bunch of people that don't really know anything about what you're doing and they'll be happy. And, you know, I, you know, so like, just like you, some of the finest musicians I know, um, there was one guitar player I used to play old time music with years ago, and I'd hire him to be a sideman at a gig, and I'd have to almost hide the money in his car, because he'd be <laughs> like, I make tons of money at my job, you just keep it all. And it's like, nah, you worked. When I was when I was in my 30s, I was playing somewhere and afterwards someone said, do you make a, you know, people used to ask if I made a living doing this in two different ways. One, which was they really hoped you were because they think it's really awesome what you're doing. And then right. the other is like, do you make a living doing this? To which I usually said things like I was in my 30s and I said, no, I died a couple of years ago. I can't. <laughs> you know, I was taking, a you know, an adult education class in um Boulder when I lived there and you know at the, on the first night of class you know you were supposed to introduce yourself and say what you did for a living well my name is Doug I'm a musician blah 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 and a couple nights later as we got to know each other better one of the women in the class who was you know I was probably in my late 20s early 30s so she was probably 40s or 50s said my son's interested in becoming a professional musician could we meet for coffee after class so I could talk to you about it I said sure I'd be glad to so I said, well, tell me a little about your son. And she goes, well, he plays the bass. And I said, upright or electric? And she goes, both. And I'm like, does he know how to read music? Is he good at reading music? She goes, oh, yeah, he sight reads. And I said, what kind of music does he play? And she goes, oh, he really enjoys everything. He plays, you know, in the orchestra at school and he plays in like a rockabilly band and and I said, you know, it is really wonderful that your son is a versatile bass player that plays both kinds of basses and that he reads well. He will always have work. And, you know, if he was like an electric, if he wanted to be a lead guitar player, it's a little trickier. And I said, and, you know, what he what he needs to learn is the business side of it and how to come off professionally. And, you know, and I said, I would be happy to talk with him if you like. And she goes, you don't understand. I was hoping you could help me talk him out of it. <laughs> and I was kind of stunned. And I was like, well, my mom tried that and failed. And I, I don't same really have my, any. Same with my parents. You want yeah, to do I was like, what I don't, with your life? I don't really you know, have anything to offer you. I'm sorry. You know? <laughs> I really want to thank Doug for spending some time with me. I enjoyed it a lot, and I hope you did too. I also want to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. And I hope you'll join me again on Creative Conversations with Roger Humphrey.